morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 11, verses 19 through 26. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. In this section of the book of Acts, we're about ready to embark on the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Up until now, there's been these these inferences, these signs and signals that the gospel is for everybody. But it's about this time in the book of Acts that we see how the gospel will be for everyone. And this is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. I, um, I've taken a number of mission trips myself over the years. Um, some of them have been quite memorable. None of them compared to what Paul and Barnabas and these fellows went through. They pale in comparison to that. Uh, one mission trip I remember in particular, and I may have told some of this story before, but if you remember it, act like it's new. In 1998, I went to uh, Ivory Coast to visit one of our missionaries, and also I flew from Ivory Coast into Liberia to visit some missionaries there. And I flew in on an African uh, airline, landed there, and as soon as I arrived, I realized, and I knew beforehand, but not to this extent, how bad things were in Liberia. You know, Liberia has had numerous civil wars uh, since the 90s and even before. And when I arrived, uh, there was no power in the entire country. Um, as you drove down the main road from the Monrovia, which is to the south up to the north where I was going to go, you see one house after another that was completely blackened because it had been burnt up. In addition to that, you saw cars overturned alongside the road, and they too were blackened by fire. And as we were traveling north, and I was with uh, one of the people who was a guide for us, I asked about the, what looked to be telephone lines and power lines, and they were just poles, no wires running through them. I said, what happened there? And, and he said, well, they were stripped. They were stripped and the copper was used to sell and to make money. So the infrastructure of the country was completely gone for all intents and purposes. Um, halfway through that trip, we, in the middle of the night, uh, broke down our vehicle. And of course, breaking down in Liberia without any power is very, very dark. 
Eventually, we were picked up by some folks who were traveling in a pickup truck, and they took us to a hotel that, again, had no power and had no water. And we slept there that night and made our way to the north part of the country. When I arrived there at the pastor's home and stayed in his home, I started noticing all over the walls, big, huge pockmarks in the walls. And I asked about it. And he said, oh, those are, uh, those are bullet holes. Because they came and they killed everyone in this house. So we were there for a few days, about seven I remember being there for. And then it was time to return uh, and go to Ivory Coast and then back home. And I uh, woke up at three o'clock in the morning because a taxi was to arrive outside the house. And sure enough, he showed up on time and I didn't sleep so I didn't have to wake up. We woke up and started towards uh, the local gas station. Now, I should tell you, on the way up, of course, there's no power. So how do you pump gas without power? You pump it with a handle. They were pumping it with a handle. We went to this gas station, and this particular gas station, for some reason, was not pumping it with a handle. I'm not sure why. All I know is that I'm sitting in the rear of the car, back by the entrance to the gasoline tank, and a young man comes over with a large pickle jar and a funnel. And I could tell that inside the pickle jar was gas. And the funnel was just to my right shoulder. And he started pouring the gas into the funnel while smoking a cigarette. <laughs> that was just the beginning. I could tell you more, but when I finally got to Monrovia to fly out that day, I arrived and I, and I got up to check in and I handed them my ticket and the person behind the counter said, you're not on this flight. I said, well, what do you mean I'm not on this flight? Well, you are, but you aren't. So, well, what does that mean? And he said, you would have had to have been here two days earlier to make sure your name remained on the manifest. I said, I couldn't have gotten here two days earlier. I left 3 o'clock this morning just to arrive for this flight. How am I supposed to? I don't know. You're not on the flight. Well, I didn't have much money left, but I had a little. And that's the only way um, to get around. And so I sat down um, a bit bewildered by what the next step was going to be. And I looked behind the counter, and I saw someone who looked to be maybe European, sort of close to my nationality, and I could tell he was speaking English. So I walked up to the counter, and I said, hey, buddy. Called him over. I said, I got to get out of here. I got no place to go. They dropped me off, and literally they did. They dropped me off at the entrance because it was all armed guards, and they couldn't go past I said, I got no way of getting out of here. I got to get on this plane. And he said, we'll see what we can work out. And he worked it out somehow. I don't know how. But he called me and got me through the line. And I gave him a little money for getting me through the line. Sorry if you don't think that's proper, but I got home. Got through the line and I'm waiting, and at this point, I'm just a little anxious, right? I'm not sure that anything's going to go quite as planned. 
And so I'm in this waiting area, and I decide I'm not sitting here with everybody else. I'm going to stand right there by that door. So when it opens up, I'm the first guy out, which is what I did. I just stood by these glass doors, and I waited for the doors to open, and I shot across that airport, which was sort of an airport that had all those big cracks in it with grass growing out of it, and I rushed out to get onto this plane, which looked to be about a DC-3. You remember those prop planes? And I jumped on the plane, and I rushed all the way up front. Well, when I got up front, I realized as if it was a different kind of plane, because the first three or four rows, all the seats were laid down, and luggage was stacked on top of the seats. So you couldn't even see over the luggage that was in front of you. And as they started up the plane, and it idled for a while, water started dripping on my head from above. I thought, well, it's the air conditioning system. It's not a problem. Surely it's going to work. What I didn't tell you is I boarded at the rear of the plane. And as I boarded at the rear of the plane, I thought to myself, something smells funny. And I looked to my right, and I heard noises. There were goats and clucking chickens and other creatures at the back of the plane. So I got on the plane and just waited. And finally it was time to taxi down the runway, but you don't really taxi in that place. You just turn around and go. So they got far back on the runway and they took off. And this plane was moaning and groaning like somebody in pain. And I'm thinking to myself, we might not make it. Um, and so I decided I would just, out of curiosity, look out the window to see how things were going. And you could see the runway going by about as fast as a bicycle would go. It finally picked up a little bit of speed, and it just all of a sudden barely lifted off the pavement. And I'm looking out the window, and as soon as I feel the lift... I see the grass of the field. I mean, here's the end of the runway, and we're off the pavement that much. But we made it. It still was a little tenuous, even up there, because it didn't seem like he could get all the way into the clouds. We just groaned and moaned our way over to Ivory Coast and landed. Now, I say that because that's nothing compared to the Apostle Paul's journeys. As a matter of fact, the next mission trip I go on, I'm going to talk to the missions committee about going somewhere where it's really bad. I mean, somewhere that I could maybe be killed or persecuted or thrown in prison. Because I need another story that's better than that one. <laughs> and Paul had a lot of them. Paul and Barnabas gathered at Antioch with a church that was established with people who were Greek, not Jewish. And the church was thriving. And the church was remarkably diverse. As a matter of fact, the diversity you can see geographically. Listen to this. Paul was from Tarsus in Cilicia. Barnabas was from Cyprus, an island. Lucius was from North Africa. And Simeon was from Central Africa. And then there was a lone local 
Manania from Antioch. Now, you can't even see Central Africa on that map. But what you can see is the diversity of where they came from. Um, I tried to get a laser pointer. I wanted to get up to date, but I'm going to have to go back to the ruler. <laughs> laser pointer just didn't show up. It just went right through the screen. So here we are in Antioch, right here. That's where the church is. This is where Paul's from. This is another place over here where Barnabas is from. One of the members of the team is probably from the Carthage area. And another member of the team is down here in Central Africa, which you can't even see. Simeon was from Central Africa, and there's speculation that Simeon, but we don't know for sure, was actually the man who carried Jesus' cross. Wouldn't that be a wonderful story? So the church at Antioch was geographically diverse. They were from everywhere. And these folks were sending the church. In other words, they got it early on. Someone came to us as Greeks. Now we have to go to others. And it's from that point that Paul and Barnabas are sent. And by the way, with all three missionary journeys that Paul was a part of, at some point it intersected or began with Antioch. It was a remarkable church. But what was the journey like? Where were they going and what were they doing? The first place they went was to Cyprus. Um, this is Paul's journey. You can see it with the arrows. See Antioch over there in the far right? They journeyed south and west to Cyprus. And when they landed at Cyprus, that's where Barnabas was from, they encountered, among other people, a man called Sergius Paulus. Now, he was a proconsul in uh, the Roman government. Now, what a proconsul meant, apparently, was that he had a large area that he governed. So he was like a governor. And he was certainly the governor of Cyprus. He might have been a governor of some areas beyond the Great Sea over towards Antioch. But we know for sure he was a governor, a proconsul over Cyprus. At that location, he had a spiritual advisor that was with him. His, one of his names was Elamus. Another one of his names was Bar-Jesus, which actually means son of Jesus. Now, it's not likely that he was indicating he was the son of the Christ, the living God. Jesus was a very common name, just like Joe. But his name is Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, or Elamus, listens to Paul and Barnabas speak to the proconsul. And the proconsul is struck and taken. The text says he was a good man, a man who feared God. And as they're telling about Jesus, the Messiah, he's struck by this and overwhelmed and moving towards faith in Jesus Christ. And about that time, Bar-Jesus says, I've had enough of this. This can't happen. I can't let him go to the other side, so to speak. And so he began to interfere. He began to interfere with Paul and Barnabas, trying to get between them and Sergius Paulus. And finally, Paul couldn't take it anymore. And he just spoke out. And he said, you're a wicked person. The text called him a sorcerer. He said, as a matter of fact, you're not a son of Jesus. You're a son of the devil. <laughs> Shut up. Leave us alone. 
we want to talk to Sergius Paulus. At that point, it doesn't seem like Paul's the one who initiated it. But at that point, at the rebuke, the text says God struck Elamus, or Bar-Jesus, blind. And in the presence of the proconsul, he's wandering around, bumping into things. He doesn't know where he is. He's absolutely blind. Eventually, the blindness, just as quickly as it came, and miraculously as it came, was lifted by God. And it says, Sergius Paulus was amazed, and he became a follower of Jesus. That's Cyprus. See, I told you, my mission trips don't even compare. They leave Cyprus, and they land in another Antioch. They actually land further down in Perga, but they go up to Antioch, up there to the top where you see Asia, up there in the Galatia area, Antioch of Pisidia. And in Antioch of Pisidia, other things happen. They begin to preach in the synagogue, which is what they routinely did. They went to the synagogue first and began to preach. As a matter of fact, it was so successful that Luke tells us the people said to Paul and to Barnabas, please come back the next Sabbath. This is awesome. We want to hear more about that. And Paul, of course, agrees to do it, returns on the second Sabbath. And on that Sabbath, it says nearly the entire town showed up. They must have not met inside the synagogue if the entire town was there. It must have been more like an open-air campaign. And Paul again preached, and uh, the preaching is, is recorded by Luke. I'm not sure how much of it, but chapter 13 is pretty long, a pretty long sermon. It's the first major sermon we see Paul preached as recorded by Luke. And here's the end result of that sermon. The Gentiles were overwhelmed. They were delighted with the fact that the good news was for them too. It's a theme you'll hear over and over again. They thought they were outside this circle of grace and many people also did who were faithful followers of Yahweh. And Paul was saying, no, nobody's outside the circle of God's grace. In Jesus, the Messiah, the good news has come to all. And they were delighted. They were just overwhelmed and rejoiced. But there were some, both Jews and Gentiles, primarily people who had something to gain or lose by this message, religious authorities, who were not so pleased. They were jealous and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas felt it was important for them to leave. Oh, I, I think it's interesting. Um, every circumstance is different. But it's not as though it's cowardly to leave when persecution begins. They had their reasons. I don't know what they were. My suspicion is it went something like this. It's a big world, and it's a big enough world that we don't need to die here. Let's go spread the news somewhere else as well. So they left, avoided the persecution, and they went to Iconium. Again, Iconium's up there on the map. I don't know if you can see it, but Iconium is, is a part of the loop. See, Paul and Barnabas started way down in Antioch. 
And they came across to Cyprus. This is, this is quite a trip. And then they went all the way up to Antioch, and now they're in Iconium, which is just below Galatia. When they arrive at Iconium, they do basically the same thing, which Paul always does. He enters the synagogue and uh, talks to people who will listen. And in Iconium, again, there were Jews and Greeks both there who were listening to the gospel. And there was dramatic success in that place. Many people came to faith in Christ. So much so that they stayed there for a long time. It doesn't say how long a long time is, but it says they stayed there for a very long time preaching the word. And during that period of time, signs and wonders accompanied their teachings, healings, and miracles of all sorts. And then, once again, Paul and Barnabas are listening. They got their ear to the ground, and they hear rumors, and they were well-founded rumors, that the opposition was planning to stone them, and they would be dead soon, and so they decided they would leave. They left Iconium, and then they journeyed to Lystra, which is uh, a little further down. On their arrival in Lystra, they encountered a man who was lame and could not walk, and Paul basically did the same thing. It's, it's interesting when you look at the text. Uh, Luke describes it in much the same way he did with Peter and the lame man at the temple gate. Paul basically says to him, get up and walk. The most counterintuitive command, well, I can't walk. Why would I do that? Get up and walk. And the man jumps up and leaps and walks, and the Word of God is is shared for a long time there as well. But not as long as it was in, in Iconium. You know why? Because when Paul said, get up and walk, the people of the town were overwhelmed. They said, this is amazing. The gods have come down. And they gave Paul and Barnabas names. To Barnabas, they gave the name Zeus. And to Paul, they gave the name Hermes because he was the chief spokesperson. By the way, to understand that, it might be helpful to know that there was a, a Greek myth at this very place that in years gone by, two Greek gods came into their city. Came into their city and went door to door to greet people and to find a place to stay. And they were turned down over and over and over again, these two Greek gods, until an older couple took them in and allowed them to have rest. And following that hospitality, the gods took this older couple up into a mountain away from the city. When they got up there, according to this myth, he invited they, the two gods, invited them to turn around and look at the valley. And in the valley, the valley where they lived was completely flooded, and everyone was dead but them. But where their house was, according to this legend, was this bright, glittering temple that had risen up. So that's the background of this, of this town. Imagine this, strangers, Paul and Barnabas, 
who no one knows walk into the town and heal a man who cannot walk. And they say, oh my, we're back where we started. Let's not miss it this time. We're not going to be flooded by the gods this time. So the priest of Zeus comes out and offers a sacrifice. It's a big bull. And the people are starting to go crazy over Paul and Barnabas. And apparently there was a little bit of a language barrier. And when Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening, they went ballistic. They said, no way, you can't do that. We're not God. Stop. We're men just like you. This is just about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't do that. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that's great. Paul and Barnabas are not taking credit, and these people will see them as humble servants of God, and no. You know what happens? The people turn on them and stone them. As a matter of fact, Paul is so badly stoned that the disciples thought he was dead. And when the crowd left and they gathered around Paul, he just rose up and they left town. Wow, that's just the beginning, by the way. We're still only halfway through the book of Acts. There's a lot more to come. I, um, I want to tell you something else that when Paul and Barnabas made this journey to Cyprus and then all the way up to Antioch of Pisidia and down to Lystra and then even into Derbe and then back up again, they returned the same route. And the reason they returned the same route was to visit the churches that had been planted and to establish leaders there, elders in each of those places. They couldn't just walk away. They had to make sure that the work of the church would go on. And when they were done, they came back a similar route across the Great Sea to Antioch and reported what had happened. So what about lessons for the church today? Um, I want to begin with just an observation, not so much a lesson. And... Um, it, it goes back all the way to when I came, uh, 1998. Early on, I don't remember when because I don't go back and check my sermons and try not to re-preach anything. I, I remember a series in the book of Acts. I think it was in the first year. And I referred to Antioch as an ECC-like church. And I still see it that way. When I look at Antioch and what was happening there, what I see is what often happens here. We have in the past dubbed ourselves a receiving, equipping, and sending church. Because people are received in, we equip them for service and they go out. They go out to do the work of God in a variety of ways. And I'm suppressing an impulse to point out one of those people who happens to be here this Sunday that was once sent out. Not everybody's sent out as a missionary supported by us. 
But everybody who comes here and becomes involved gives us great blessing and gifts and talents. And then they go out with what they've given us and what we've given them to resource the church around the world. And I love that about us. See, the church at Antioch was a very gifted church. They had lots of teachers and prophets and all kinds of people who were ready to do the work of the ministry, but they saw the work of the ministry as being something other than babysitting themselves. What they said concerning the ministry is this, the church, though it's not put this way anywhere in the text, if the church stays where it is and does not send itself out, the church dies. The church is not for itself. The church is for the world. And so Antioch just embraced this reality and became this hub of sending. And Paul and Barnabas, uh, we see early on as the first ones. I, I love ECC because of that. I realize sometimes... It's very painful after 18 years of watching people come and go. But I wouldn't trade it for the world because we're being sent to the world. So thank you for your part. Especially for those of you who are here and don't leave. Like me. You make it happen. Not everyone is sent, but all of us can send, and we must continue to do it. It's part of the lifeblood of the church, and this one in particular. So, what other lessons for the church? I think one of the lessons for the church is to expect the unexpected. Nothing ever goes as planned, right? You have an idea about how a particular ministry is going to develop in a different place or even here. And you think you've got it all figured out and it doesn't work out that way. Don't worry. Take a deep breath. The great thing about your mission is it's God's first. And God will accomplish His purposes. You're just there to be the facilitator. And when things don't work out as planned, and when you have to modify your own plans, and when you're overwhelmed with disappointment because you had an idea about what it was supposed to be, just recoup for a moment and realize that God is doing a work in a way that you didn't anticipate. Unexpected. Unplanned by your plans, but planned by His. Another thing it seems to me is uh, we ought to keep in mind as a church, a, a, a church that's ascending church, a church, that's a, a church that reaches out in this community as well. We need to remember what I'll call the 25% rule, okay? It's not really a 25% rule, but you get the idea when I tell the story. When Jesus was on earth, he talked to the disciples about spreading seed like a farmer. Sowing seed and, and doing the work of the good news that way. 
And you may remember that story. Jesus said some of the seed is spread out and it's along the path and birds come and they eat it up and it's gone. And some seed, he said, well, you spread it out and it falls among thorns. And the thorns come up and, and they choke it out. And some seed, it, it falls among rocky crags and it looks like it's going to be all right because it springs up, but it can't sustain itself and it dies out. And some seed, it falls in good soil and it bears fruit, sometimes a hundredfold. You see why I called it the 25% rule? <laughs> because three out of the four didn't seem to work. But the fourth did. In other words, we spread widely. We share the good news. And we don't know what's going to take and where it's going to take and how it's going to take. So let's remember that if even 25% of it takes, it's amazing. Because that 25% could have a yield of a hundred or more. You never know what God's going to do with the seed you sow. Another lesson, of course, from the life of Paul and others is it's difficult. <laughs> the work's just difficult. It's difficult, it's discouraging, you have setbacks all along the way, and sometimes it's downright dangerous. Of course, our danger doesn't compare to his. But sometimes it's just dangerous. And still, people go. And still, we are sent. And still, we send them. Because it's that important. You may remember... Um, some of you who were here that I took a trip to Pakistan to visit some of our missionaries in February and it was a, a delightful time. Upon my return home, not so long after that, you may also remember the news of a bomb that went off in basically what is in, in effect a playground area for children and their parents uh, on Easter Sunday. And many, many Christians were killed uh, just another act of terrorism and danger. And when I heard about it, I immediately uh, emailed and texted our friends who were in Pakistan to say, are you okay? And I got back in a, a text or an email, I don't know which. Yes, we're fine. Um, but he said, my wife and the children were in that park just two weeks ago. It's a very popular place to be. They are there, and they're sharing the good news, and they're not bailing out. They gave an update on their Facebook page, and we have to be careful about referring to who they are, where they are, and all those kind of things. They're one of the missionaries that we don't connect the dots with publicly. But they're still down, and in, in, in the email they said, we're not coming back. Dangers everywhere. We're called. 
We have to remember that we send people into places like that, and people are sent into places like that. And it's part of the gospel proclamation. It always has been from the beginning. So we continue to do it. The last thing, it's really got nothing to do with Paul's missionary trip, except I have to think about Paul's third one. He went to Rome, where eventually he died. And we think by all accounts he was beheaded. I don't know what effect Rome had on Paul when he arrived. But I think it's a good assumption to say that he was overwhelmed. Because it was the greatest nation in the world, arguably in the history of the world. The buildings were gigantic. The Colosseum was overwhelming. The palace of Caesar was imposing. And we think of Paul as this big, gigantic character of faith, bigger than life. But actually, he was a relatively unknown hunchback talking about a crazy man called Jesus. That's who entered Rome when he arrived. Of course, there was some notoriety around him. Enough so that Roman guards kept him in prison because he was, in their mind, stirring up some sort of sedition. I say all that to say this. I've been to Rome twice in my life. And it is amazing. But it's dead. I mean ancient Rome. It's gone. It's ruins. It's the crumbling sands of time. And everywhere else I've been in the world, I see another empire. Not one of Colosseums, but one of churches. In Rome and everywhere else. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has marched through time and will march into eternity. That's why the difficulties are worth it. That's why the impossible mission is something we embrace. Because we know that at the bottom of our mission is a human institution that is eternal. The church of Jesus Christ. Don't give up on it. Don't abandon it. Be a part of it. It's life. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that we are the bride of Christ. My, that's a special designation. No, we're not individual brides. You don't say, Bob, you're the bride of Christ. You say, the church. It's the bride of Christ. Because it's not about me and it's not about the people sitting here this morning. It's about us. 
It's about that throng of people who from the beginning in the book of Acts have collectively spoken the good news of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. So we thank you, Lord, that we can count ourselves to be a part of the bride of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you will make us diligent and worthy servants of the mission to which you've called us. Give us patience when our patience runs out. Give us energy when we are overwhelmed by fatigue. And give us encouragement when we're too discouraged to see the next day. And all along the way, Lord, in our efforts, remind us that you, the eternal God, are working out your purposes seen and unseen. And all we need to do is be faithful. We thank you for that in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.